0: And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Then Jesus went up on the hillside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him. For he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, Eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again into the hills by himself. And the time is uh, spring of the year. The uh, grass was green. The birds were singing. The flowers were out. Jewish men were on their way to Jerusalem, making the pilgrimage to uh, the capital city for uh, for the Passover. The place is the northeast corner of the Sea of Galilee, largely uninhabited area, just a few miles south of the city of Bethsaida, which was uh, Philip's hometown. Jesus was looking for a place to uh, rest. It has been a long week. He was weary. Mark tells us that Jesus said to the disciples, let's uh, get away for a while. They were so busy they had not even taken the time to eat the day before. They needed uh, a place where they could get away from the crowds and rest. Jesus was also uh, very sad because he had just received the news that John the Baptist had been uh, beheaded. So he wanted to get away. But uh, it wasn't to be. They arrived. Uh, at this particular spot, the little boat ground up on the beach, and they discovered a large crowd had uh, gathered. I think I would probably be resentful. Jesus was not. In the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, because they'll be satisfied. These were people who were hungry and thirsting after righteousness. They wanted to know God. He wanted to satisfy them. So... He began to teach them. We don't know what he taught. The other gospel writers don't tell us, but he made his way through the crowd, teaching, touching, healing, counseling, helping people. At some point early in the day, he asked Philip, where are we going to get bread to feed all these people? John tells us plainly that he didn't ask because he wanted an answer. As a rhetorical question he asked because he wanted to test Philip. Philip answered the way any unbeliever would answer, basically uh, the way a, a non-Christian would answer, the way we sometimes answer when we reckon on our own resources and without God. He said, well, there isn't enough money to feed them all. In today's uh, economy, they would need about $10,000 in order to feed this crowd. there would be enough to get a Big Mac and a Diet Pepsi. and That's all they could afford. They didn't have that kind of money in their pockets. So uh, Philip didn't know what to do. It's, it's impossible to feed this crowd. There isn't enough to uh, feed them. I suppose Jesus asked Philip because he was from Bethsaida. He knew the area. He knew where to get food. But it was unlikely that any of them would be able to rustle up enough grub for this, uh, this crowd. At some point through the day, the disciples uh, made their way through the crowd, perhaps asking if anyone had any food. No one had anything because they hadn't prepared to make this trip. Andrew, however, uh, located a, a little boy who had a bag lunch and he had uh, five little pancakes, looked like uh, pita bread, and two sardines. His mother had packed him a bag of lunch that morning. He was getting ready to eat it, and Andrew spied it, took the uh, lunch to the Lord, and uh, he said, there, Here's what we've been able to find, but uh, what can you do with this? According to Mark, Jesus said, have them sit down in groups of 50 and 100. Mark is writing Peter's reminiscences, and Peter remembered this event uh, clearly, vividly. He was probably standing on the seashore looking up at the crowd. I've been in this particular location. It's sort of an amphitheater there, a natural amphitheater, and it's covered with grass. And they sat in groups of 50 and 100. Mark says, like flower plots, their uh, colorful eastern garb. The purples and the oranges and the yellows and the reds that characterize their dress would uh, show up, and uh, to Peter it looked like a flower garden. Uh, the organization was good; it was necessary in order to distribute the food. But there's no power in organization, none, whatever. That's uh, it's a good thing, but it doesn't uh, couldn't feed the people. So our Lord took uh, these five little pancakes. And these two pickled fish, and John says he gave thanks, and I ask for what well he, he gave thanks that there was enough to go around, and he began to break the bread and and as he was breaking the bread, Mark tells us it began to multiply and to drop into the little baskets that each disciple had a little. little pack basket, looked like an LL, one of those old LL Bean pack baskets that they carried over their back, kept all their gear in it. They evidently dumped their clothes out, and they made those bags, those uh, little baskets available. And as the Lord began to break off the pieces of bread and drop them into the basket, he kept multiplying, pretty soon the basket was overflowing. And one disciple would pick that up, and he'd take it to one group of 50, and they'd distribute the bread. And they kept coming back, and after a while, everyone was fed. John said, everyone had enough. They were all satisfied. There were 12 baskets left over, one for each disciple. Because remember, they hadn't eaten anything the day before. They hadn't eaten anything that day. They'd gone without food for 48 hours. And so the, the baskets left over amounted to one basket of food for each disciple. It's a wonderful picture of our, of our Lord's ability to supply our needs according to His, uh, his ability. People were so impressed, they uh, they wanted to make him king. Wanted to forego the Passover and crown him king right on the spot. He said, this man's the prophet, the one that's predicted in Deuteronomy 18, who would come, who's like Moses. Moses, who fed uh, the nation with manna from heaven. This is the second Moses. This is the, this is the prophet that's predicted. This is the one like uh, the lawgiver that we're to look for. They wanted to make him the king. It's a wonderful story. Uh, I used to tell it in Young Life Clubs. Most of you have heard it. Various settings. A lot of obvious application. But the one that appeals to me most is the one that the Lord himself gives. Because he applied this uh, this story in the verses that, uh, that follow. Let's... Uh, Let's take a look at his argument. In uh, verse uh, 16, we're told that when evening came, the disciples got in the boat. Jesus sent them off to the other side. They began to row back to Tiberias, which is in the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee, about uh, five miles away. Jesus went off into the hills, uh, retired from the crowd. Middle of the night, he joined the uh, disciples by walking across the sea. Another evidence that he is the second Moses. Moses control had control over the dead, the Red Sea. Jesus had command of the Sea of Galilee. We'll talk about that miracle at some some point in the future in our series. He joined them in the middle of the sea. They they rode on to the other side over to Tiberius and uh in the meantime the crowd uh, that he had fed uh, got up the next morning queued up for breakfast and discovered that he wasn't there to feed them. They looked around, where's breakfast? And uh, the Lord wasn't there. So they started asking questions. Where has where he gone? They discovered that uh, under cover of darkness, the disciples had slipped away, and they thought perhaps Jesus had had joined them. And there were a number of boats that had been blown across the Sea of Galilee by the storm. And uh, they either chartered them or commandeered them, and... Uh, They got in these boats and started to row back to the other side, four or five miles, and arrived shortly after Jesus and the other apostles did. And in verse 25, they asked him the question, Rabbi, when did you come here? Now, that's really not the question that was on their mind. Uh, We often ask uh, one question when we have a deeper question. In mind. The question really is why no show? We we were ready for breakfast. He didn't show up. We're hungry. By this time it was past lunchtime. It was probably getting toward the the evening of, of this second day. And they were getting real hungry and they were lined up ready for food. Why did you go off and leave us hungry? If you're the second Moses, why not feed us again with bread from heaven? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, you're looking for me not because you saw the miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils. That's a bad investment. But for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. That's where you get it. On Him, God the Father has placed His seal of approval. And it's obvious that Jesus is speaking of bread in a symbolic way. Uh, food is a good symbol though, of, of the truth that he wanted to uh, that he wanted to teach, because food, to some extent, does satisfy us, but it doesn't satisfy us very long. Best way to kill your appetite is to eat, but your appetite comes back. Most of us have at least three square meals a day and snack in between, and snack before you go to bed tonight. That's you know. Staves off hunger a little bit longer, but, uh, the hunger keeps coming back. The thirst keeps coming back. You have to keep feeding yourself. Jesus said, don't work for that kind of food. Work for the food that endures. That, uh, that lasts. He points out there are two kinds of bread with which we try to satisfy ourselves. There's lasting food and there's passing food. Now by, now by passing food, he's talking about all of the stuff that we try to do to satisfy ourselves, all the gym cracks and doodads that we buy, all the junk with which we fill our lives that we think someday will satisfy us. We start out as children wanting a certain toy. We buy it, break it, or wear it out, put it on the shelf, forget it. We go buy another toy, and we discover soon that uh, these things don't last. But somehow we never learn that lesson. The older we get, the more expensive toys we buy. It takes us a little longer to save up in order to purchase them. But the result's always the same. Remember a friend of mine talking about a piece of property he wanted all of his life, worked most of his adult life in order to save enough money to buy it? Beautiful piece of property up on the salmon River. he bought it, claimed it, set foot on it. He said the whole thing just turned into ashes in his hands. He didn't want any of it. That's true to life. It's true to life prophets talk about digging out broken cisterns that can hold no water. We think that our marriages will satisfy. We think that a child will satisfy. We think that getting married will satisfy. We think that sex will satisfy. We think that advancement in our business will satisfy. We have all sorts of things that we do or we purchase and we long for that we think will satisfy and then we get them in our hands. they We find the hunger returns. It's that kind of food that Jesus is talking about. He's thinking symbolically. But he says there's another food that will endure. You never get tired of it. It never runs out. There's always enough. It always satisfies. It always fills you. He says work for that. Work for the food that endures to eternal life. Which the Son of Man will give you. There's only one person who can give us life, and that's the Son of Man, period. Jesus said, on him, God has set a seal. In other words, God has authenticated the Son to give life, and there isn't any source of life in anyone else or anything else. You're not going to find it in your psychiatrist, your counselor, your pastor. You're not going to find it in Buddha. You're not going to find it in Zoroaster. You're not going to find it in Sun Myung Moon. You're not going to find it in Joseph Smith. You're going to find it in Jesus Christ, period. That's the only, that's the only source of life in this, in, in this world. You recall Peter's great confession. Jesus said to the disciples, What do men say about me? Who do they think I am? So, they said, Well, some, some say you're the prophet who's to come. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're the Messiah. Jesus said, what do you say? Peter said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're not one and long line of great men. You're unique. You're special. You're the only one. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. On Him, God the Father has set a seal. There, There is no other. I'll just tell you, in all honesty, you, you, you can waste the rest of your life trying to find meaning and significance and substance and something other than Jesus Christ, and you will not find it. There is no satisfaction apart from him. We get to be like the Rolling Stones. There ain't no satisfaction. So they ask him, "What, what miraculous sign will you give that we may see it and believe you? In other words, why should we believe you? Why should we think that you're the source of life? You're just a mere man. What, what will you do? What sign will you give us? Our forefathers ate the man in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. In other words, you fed 5,000 one meal. Big deal. Moses fed 2.5 million people for 40 years. Now there's a man we can believe in. What can you do that's comparable? Jesus said, No, you're wrong on two counts. I tell you the truth. It wasn't Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father. He, in the quotation which they give, doesn't refer to Moses. It refers to God. He gave them bread to eat. They missed that. Moses wasn't the miracle worker. It was God who worked the miracle. He fed them for 40 years. With manna from heaven, every day they got up and... uh, there was a kind of a white fuzzy thing on the ground. It tastes like coriander seed and honey. and They could boil it and fry it and prepare it in various ways, bake it. And it satisfied them for 40 years. The God sent that. It wasn't Moses. Secondly, that manna was simply a sign of the greater manna that is to come. You see how he's arguing? It's my Father who gives you the true bread that comes from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Manna represented the Messiah. It was a kind of down payment, symbolic down payment on the time when God would send His own Son into the world who would become for us the bread of life and make Him just as accessible, just as available as that manna was to Israel. They got up every morning. It was all around them. They just went out and gathered it up. And there's always enough to satisfy their need. It was a kind of a visual aid of the time when Messiah would come and would satisfy you totally. They said, give us this bread. If you're the one, give us this bread. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. How simple could you put it? They said, give us this bread of life. He said, here I am. Here I am. You don't have to go up to heaven to find it. I'm here. I'm here. He who comes to me will never go hungry. And he who believes in me will never be thirsty. He uses a double negative in in the language uh, that he spoke. Uh, Double negatives in English are not good grammar. We don't say, I don't never do something but it's perfectly good Greek. And, and that's the expression that Jesus uses here. You will not never get thirsty. You will not never get hungry. In other words, you will never, by any means, whatever, hunger and thirst again. It's an unequivocal promise. You come to me and, and, and you'll find whatever it is you've been looking for throughout your entire life, and you will be utterly satisfied in a way that nothing else can can satisfy you. And it's available to anyone, whoever comes. I will, again, here's this double negative, not never drive away. Anyone, doesn't make any difference how far gone you are or how thoroughly you have messed up your life. Anyone who comes can have him. For the asking. He's come down and made himself available because, as he says, that's what the Father wanted. It was the Father's will to do this. And anyone who looks to the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I'll raise him up at the last day. Couldn't be any clearer. He and he alone is the source of satisfaction, and he's right here available. All you have to do is come and believe. Come and believe. And John tells us that the Jews at this point began to grumble because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven by Jews. He's probably referring to uh, the clergy, the priests, the Levites, the lawyers, the teachers. The Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph? We know his father and mother. How can he say, I came down from heaven? He's talking about heavenly origins. We, we know where he came from. He's born in comes from Nazareth, born in Bethlehem. Uh, he has a human father and a human mother. They didn't understand. They didn't understand the incarnation. They didn't understand the virgin birth. They didn't realize that Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit. They didn't understand his origin. He didn't try to explain it to them. He never did. As a matter of fact, he, he just sort of slips the punch and and, and moves to a, another issue. It is written in the prophets, they'll all be taught of... Verse 44, excuse me. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I'll raise him up at the last day. It's written in the prophets, they'll all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. You understand what he's saying? The prophets had said that during the Messianic age, everyone would be taught of the Father. The Father was teaching the people. This uh, group gathered to listen to Jesus. The Father was saying to these people, this is my son, listen to him. Take Him seriously. Take a good hard look at Him. He says, the problem is that you're not listening to the Father. You're not of the Father. You're not drawing near to Him, and He's not drawing you to Him. Your heart's not right. Jesus underscores again that the problem of unbelief is never an intellectual problem. Never! It's always a moral problem. It's a matter of hardness of heart problem of sin resident within, we, we don't want to deal with our sin. We don't want to uncover it. We don't want to expose it. Or we don't want to admit that we have a need. We want to be able to stand before God and say, I got here all by myself. I didn't need any help. And that's what causes us to stumble. That's what Jesus means when he, he says, first, you have to listen to the Father. And if you're listening to the Father, you'll come to the Son. People who say to me, oh, I love God, I want to serve God, but I don't have any use for Jesus, I have to say that that you you don't know the Father. You're not serving the Father. Because if you're listening to the Father, you'll learn from Him and come to Jesus. Jesus. He who believes in me has everlasting life, Jesus said. I I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the man in the desert and they died. That's the kind of bread that doesn't last. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven which a man may eat and not die. Would you like to not die? Would you like to live forever? Then it, it comes as a result of eating and drinking of Christ. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If a man eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. In other words, you have to eat my flesh, which I'm giving to you and to the world if you want to live. And at that point, they stumbled. The Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? How coarse! How crass! He's talking about eating his flesh. But you see, they didn't understand. They didn't understand. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me. And I am him, just as the living Father sent me. And I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Our forefathers ate man and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. They didn't understand because they weren't listening. They weren't listening to the Father, and they weren't listening to what Jesus said. He had already explained in verse 35 what he meant by the metaphor of eating and drinking. Look at verse 35. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. What is it that satisfies your hunger? Eating. So eating must be coming. He who believes in me will never thirst. What satisfies your thirsty? Drinking. Therefore, drinking is believing. So eating and drinking of Christ is coming and believing. That's all he's saying. You want to find life? You want to be satisfied? You want to find significance and meaning and purpose in life? Then you have to come and believe Here I am, he says. Here I am. I'm available. I came down from heaven. I just come and believe. Turn from all the things that you've been believing in, all the things that you've been going to in order to find life, no matter what it is, and believe in me and you'll find the life that you've been looking for. It strikes me that that's the the essence of Christian living. It's simply coming and believing, coming and believing. You get up every morning. And uh, you have a case of the blahs, and you don't want to go to work, and you feel like you don't have what it takes to face the day. And you just come to him. You remind yourself of who he is and what his resources are. Recall his adequacy, and, and you believe it. You begin to rest in him and in his ability. Or you're facing some difficult decision on the job and you don't don't know what to do and so you come to him and believe or you're facing some terrible hunger that nothing can satisfy and you come to him and you believe and we have it on the authority of his words that you will never ever hunger you will never ever thirst You're not going to find it in the bottom of a bottle. You're not going to find that in in some kind of drug. You're not going to find that in any human relationship. You're you're only going to find that in Jesus. You want to have life? Just come and believe. In verse 57, he sets up an, an equation, just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father. So he who feeds on me will live because of me. Do you understand what he's saying? The same relationship that I sustain to the Father, you sustain to me. What relationship did Jesus have to the Father? He was totally dependent upon him. He ate and drank of the Father. And now he says, the same relationship that I have to the Father, you must have with me. Just keep coming. Just keep believing. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? I find this hard to believe, they say. Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? What if you you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? What if I said this in my glory? He said this in his incarnation when he was in flesh. They found it difficult to handle because he seemed to be just a mere man. They couldn't see the glory. What if I did say this, he said, in my ascended glory? Would it be any more believable? I don't think so, because the problem is not what he said so much as it's their understanding of what he said. And they understand they understood all too well what he said. What he says, uh, he says, the spirit that gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. By the flesh, he means human activity. This is the offense. It's that it all depends on me. It all depends upon supernatural activity. It all depends upon the activity of the Spirit of God. It's what God is doing in your life that matters. It's not what you do. And that's what offends us. And that's what they understood. And that's why they turned away. Because they wanted to be able to put their thumbs behind their suspenders and say, I did this all by myself. They didn't want to admit that their need was was total and come to Him and and receive life. He says, There are some of you that do not believe, for Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe, and who would betray him. He went on to say, This is why I told you, that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. They were like the rich young ruler. And I'm sure it saddened Jesus to see people walk away, but he, he didn't chase after them. And he never does. He simply lays out his claims. And we have to make the choice. Then Jesus turns to the twelve. And he says to them in verse 67, Do you want to go too? Actually, what he says, as the translation puts is that you do not want to leave too, do you? The, The question assumes a negative answer. No. Because he knew the hearts of of the Twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go?
1: You have the words of
0: eternal life. We believe and know that you're the Holy One of, of God. Jesus' popularity was waning. Within a year, they would crucify him. But Peter knew that there was no other source of life. He had come to Christ by the process of elimination, he knew that nothing else worked. Peter was married, sure he had a a good marriage, it would seem to be so, and yet his marriage didn't satisfy him. Peter probably had children, they didn't satisfy him. He had a a going fishing business, that didn't satisfy him. Nothing could satisfy him but Jesus. You have the words of eternal life. You and you alone. And that's really all I want to say to you this morning. There's only one source of life, and that's our Lord Jesus. There is no other. Father, we have tried to find life in every conceivable place. We've looked everywhere, and we continue to come up empty. We can't find any satisfaction. We've hewn out cisterns and we discover them to be broken cisterns. And we discover from this passage and we discover from experience when we act upon it that you and you alone are the one we've been looking for all of our life. You're the you're the person who can satisfy. And so we turn to you and we ask you to make yourself real to us, to reveal yourself to us this morning in a way that you've never revealed yourself before. Help us to see you by means of the Holy Spirit. Keep us from being confused and deceived by the evil one. Help us to, to recognize who you are in truth and, and then to come to you and to keep coming to you and to keep believing in you. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.